You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BNH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan White. Greetings and welcome to the BNH Photography Podcast. During the second half of the last century, the best indicators of a product's value were the tags recipient of the Good Housekeeping Seal of Approval and As Seen in Life magazine. There were plenty of magazines on the stands back in the day, but as a photographer, if you wanted to say you've arrived, nothing said it better than having your pictures published in Life magazine. For almost four decades, Life was the weekly go-to publication for general news, lifestyle and entertainment, and of course, photography. At its height, it sold 13.5 million copies a week. Margaret Burke White, W. Jean Smith, Robert Kappa, Gordon Parks, Cartier Bresson, Dorothea Lang, and Alfred Eisenstadt were among its esteemed roster of photographers. With America's attention switching to television by the late 1950s and eventually away from print media in general, life slowly became a remnant of another era. But its influence on photography is still immense, and today we're going to be talking about Life magazine and particularly its reincarnation and ultimate switch to Life.com. Joining us is Bill Shapiro, a writer and editor. Bill was the editor of Life magazine from 2004 to 2007 and the founding editor of Life.com. He's also a photo curator and the author of Other People's Love Letters, the children's book Gus and Me, on which he collaborated with none other than Keith Richards. Most recently, he authored What We Keep, for which he asked 150 people about their most treasured objects and included a photograph of each of these objects with an essay. Folks he spoke to for the project included author Cheryl Strayed, comedian Hassan Minhaj, the musician Amanda Palmer, and many others. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I am so glad to be here. We're talking about Life magazine, but in many ways, today's topic is going to really talk about print media in general and how all of that has changed dramatically. All of this meaning the collapse of advertising in print media? That's a good starting point. Yeah. yeah that's well, that's, that's, a, I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's an upbeat place to start. I mean, you know, even, even last week, we saw some of the biggest websites, BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, Yahoo, have to make staff cuts of their editorial team. So, you know, I think what we're seeing, uh, unfortunately, is the distribution channels, uh, Facebook, et cetera, that's where all the advertiser money is going. And the people who are making the content uh, aren't really walking away with the spoils. The, the, the sort of equivalency would be if during the, say, the Life era, instead of Life magazine making the money, uh, the U.S. Post Office was making the money. Or, or the delivery trucks who were bringing it to your house were making the money. That's right. There was a whole support system, essentially, that made sure it all happened. That's all gone now, in a way. Yeah, that, in, I mean, real that, way. That's, that's gone. But, but, you know, the distribution platforms now are the ones who are making the money as opposed to the content creators. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's jump back a little bit to when you got involved in life. What had you been doing and, and how did life become part of your life? So I had had a quite a varied uh, career up until that point, uh, making magazines for lots of different audiences. Mm. Um, parenting magazine, Maxim magazine, mm-hmm. Self magazine. Um, I started a business magazine for MBA students that was kind of like the equivalent of um, 
I don't know, Rolling Stone in a car crash with fortune, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but what's important, though, is that you had the opportunity to do that back then. Well, th- th- that's right. The, the, you know, the opportunity to start a new magazine from a blank slate or reinvent a magazine um, is an unbelievable experience, which I've been fortunate enough to do many times, uh, including with life. So, so yeah. And, and so all those, all, and I also, for Time Inc., I also ran a division there where we made magazines, uh, custom content magazines for advertisers like Ford, um, Target, Merrill Lynch, et cetera. So I was used to making magazines for lots of different audiences. Mm-hmm. And when you come to life and you're talking to the entire population of the United States, right? Black, white, rich, poor, old, young, uh, all sorts of demographics and political persuasions. The ability to speak to all different kinds of people um, was important. In, in, in a way, Life magazine, if you want to compare it to the medium that took it over, which is TV, would be comparable to, say, the Ed Sullivan Show, which was one hour of everything from classic opera to circus acts to the Beatles um, and, and Topo Gigio, a guy standing there with a sock on his hand making a lot of money for years. <laughs> right, right. Um, <laughs> right, and, and actually one of the things that my understanding is that led to the demise of life in the 90s, uh, which was before I, I sort of reinvented it, you know, uh, in 2004, was the fact that advertisers were looking for a more segmented market. Mm-hmm. So Life was a magazine for, for everybody, for, for males and females. So if they wanted to sell, you know, Gillette razors to men, they were buying an audience that cost them, you know, uh, 100%, but they were only reaching 50% because it was only men. So advertisers who wanted to reach the audience that their products were really geared for uh, kind of carried the day against these general interest magazines that sure. were for everybody. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were in, in Time, Inc., and they came to you and said, hey, we're going to start up life again. We want you to be uh, in they charge. Came, they came to me and they said, write a memo. Okay. What, what would this magazine look like to you? Mm-hmm. And um, I caught my breath and went home and wrote the best memo of my life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay. How much confidence <laughs> did you have in that? Because again, my guess is you had enough of an understanding of the market, of where it was, where it is, and where it's going. Did you have, how much, what was your confidence level on this thing actually working on a, say, a scale of one to 10, 10 being, yeah, with, with gangbusters? On day one? Day one, yeah. Um, I would say about a three. <laughs> Okay. I had never worked on a weekly before. Right. I had never done a celebrity magazine before. And I said to Norman Perlstein, who was the editorial director at Time Inc., the editor-in-chief who hired me, I said, uh, this is great. I'm thrilled. I couldn't be more excited, but no celebrity experience, no weekly experience. And he said, you know what you're doing. I have full confidence in you. If we can't find somebody at this company with celebrity experience, shame on us. Mm. And, 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 and we did. And, um, you know, I feel like he was right because I had, I knew what this magazine should be. And so once I had that vote of confidence and I hired the staff, my confidence grew and grew and grew. And and in fact, our first issue came out, uh, in my opinion, fully formed. And and we sort of heard that from a lot of people that it it really felt like it knew what it was. And what did you 
look back on and want to keep? And what did you say, okay, we got to get rid of that? And, and what did you bring at that point that would have been new to life? And, and, and how, what was your experience with Life Magazine, you know, growing up and up until that point? So I, you know, I took pictures in junior high and high school. Mm. Not that I was <laughs> fantastic. I took pictures mostly of um, the Grateful Dead and would <laughs> print them up and then sell them at the next show. Yeah, but back then, nothing else mattered. Nothing else mattered to <laughs> it was me. Okay, you do, yeah. that was fine. Okay, yeah. <laughs> make that's a good career track. I so, get it. So, okay. so I did that. Um, uh, those those pictures are worth uh, probably dozens of cents today. There's um, <laughs> a reason why you're sitting here this morning. <laughs> that's exactly. That's exactly right. Um, but so I, I knew what Life Magazine was. I, I read it in I read it in high school. I read it in college. Um, did I have a sense of the history of it? I didn't. Did I have a sense of what it could bring and how it could move people and the power that it had? I did. Um, I had a strong sense of the potential um, of what a picture could do and how it could make you feel. When it came to this version of life that I was being asked to reimagine well, I was, or, or asked to produce, you know, the question was, do you bring back um, the old life? Do you reinvent it entirely? something in between. And the answer is, uh, to your question, we kept the DNA, which is the strong focus on photography, visual imagery, um, using photographs to tell stories. But there were so many things that were different about this magazine, and, and I can weigh them out in a second, that for me necessitated a rethinking of it. So um, number one, it came in newspapers. It was an insert like parade. That was part of the deal going in. Right? Day one. Okay. I mean, that was, that was part of the original business plan. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't just want to launch life. Right. They, they saw a market that was being, they thought they could take a piece of it, which mm. is those ads that were in um, the sort of Sunday supplements. They saw a huge circulation and they saw huge costs for those ads. And they said, we can take a piece of that. We can go premium which is not print on newsprint, but print on uh, a glossier paper and bring something uh, else to the advertisers that, that they might really want. That's essentially what the New York Times Sunday Magazine section is, right? Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's something extra. Per, it's a great uh, uh, f uh, platform for super glossy high-end ads. But this is on a national scale. And, right. and National and scale with... Competing right. with Parade or other yeah, so, magazines so, like so that. So I think uh, I'll probably get these numbers somewhat wrong, but right. I think Parade had like 30 million circulation, you know, monster. Um, I think USA Today had, had know, 24 and we launched with about 12, 12 and a half. Mm. Still the biggest launch in timing history. Mm -hmm. But uh, going back to my original point... Um, so it was coming in your, in your newspaper. It would be surrounded by the day's news, right? Uh, murders, assassinations, car accidents, mm -hmm. uh, terrible things that happened on planes. Um, <laughs> we didn't want to be that, right? We, we, we wanted to differentiate ourselves from, from that. It also came on a Friday. So what are people thinking on a Friday? Mm -hmm. Thinking about the weekend. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to be topical that way. We wanted to, uh, kind of click into that mindset, um, we were going to be much smaller, right? At at somewhere between sixteen and you know thirty two pages. Um, so so those were and I, maybe most important, we were an uninvited guest in people's homes. In other mm. words, 
Life magazine on the newsstand, you plunk down your five bucks, you like what's on the cover, you pick it up. If you don't like what's on the cover, if it was something, a grisly image from World War II, or it's too sexy, you, you, you pick it up next week. Not here. So we had to be careful that what that anything in our magazine would be fine for, you know, your six-year-old daughter to come across or else we'd be getting letters mm -hmm. from readers and from the editors of the newspapers in mm -hmm. which we were bundled And with. was there any continuity with, with, let's say, you know, life from, at this point, the 60s and the 70s? Were there, were there staff holdovers? Were there decision makers saying, you know what, we used to do it this way, you should continue doing it this way or, or not? Um, uh, that's a great question. So 60s and 70s, I'm not... 100% sure. Well, yes. So uh, Bobby, Baker, Bobby Baker Burroughs mm -hmm. was a photo editor who had been at Life for years. She was married to a man named Russell Burroughs, whose father was the great legendary life photographer, Larry Burroughs. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. Who died uh, on assignment in Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, his pictures are, are, you know, extraordinary. And Bobby had amazing connections through all of her years through that with photographers like Gordon Parks, mm -hmm. uh, David Duncan Douglas, uh, and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. um, Bob Sullivan, so Bobby was on my staff. Um, Bob Sullivan had been managing Life Books. He had been on the Life staff uh, when it closed in the, in the 90s or, or 2000 uh, and had been managing Life Books in the interim. He's, he, he went on my staff. Mm -hmm. But I hired some amazing people. Um, you know, I hired the most racially diverse staff at uh, Time Inc. Um, because, again, we were going out to America right. and America was no longer white. So my director of photography is the, the late, great George Pitts, mm -hmm. who had been the first director of photography at Vibe mm -hmm. and in fact had an sure, yeah. amazing, amazing, amazing man. And in some ways he had developed the visual vernacular for rap and hip hop, you know, that we still see today. Uh, Richard Baker was the creative director. Uh, he came from Premiere and some other places. He had also been at Vibe and, and Maggie Murphy from um, Entertainment Weekly. She, she was the one who brought that celebrity experience that I was mentioning mm -hmm. earlier. Mm -hmm. Life in its heyday from the late 30s into the early 70s was this weekly, you know, behemoth or, or uh, that's the right word, but, you know, this giant in the industry. And then in the 80s and 90s, it, it became more of a monthly, mm -hmm. more or less with the same editorial vision and the same editorial sense. A little less newsy. A little less newsy, okay. Because on a monthly, on a monthly calendar, you can't have the pictures taken in, in Germany or right. Vietnam or wherever um, and, and have them, you know, four days, five days, six mm -hmm. days later. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be you, – you typically close a monthly magazine, um, you know, weeks if not a month in advance. Okay. Well, even weeklies had its challenge because magazines like uh, Life and Look magazine, they would essentially close at about 3 o'clock on Thursday – in order to get all of the artwork and artboards to the printer so that it could be on the newsstands Monday morning. There was about a four-day lead time back in the 60s, 70s. Right, and, and some of that's been improved now because there's printers all over the place and everything is, you know, yeah, licking yeah. split. But, but at that time... But back in that time, yes. Absolutely. So, so, the, so, so what you cover changes a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and life in the later years um, had to be... We, less newsy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think it was interesting mm -hmm. that, again, I remembered life from its its heyday. And even though it was a weekly publication, I would say that 
it had the same weight as television as far as it's, it's, it's content. It was an event. When that thing showed up at your mailbox, first of all, it was big. It was a tabloid. It was giant. It had authority. It, yeah, that was it. It had credibility and everything. And when that thing showed up, it was, this is what happened last week. It was a nice summary of what happened last week. And the pictures were premier. Other magazines had photographs, but they supplemented the text. Life magazine was about pictures and the text complemented the photographs. And I think that was a big difference. The pictures told the story. Bingo. Yep. That's it. So in, in 2000 is when it, it ceased its regular monthly publication. And then, so there's this four year period before you came involved. And, right. uh, were, was there always a conversation about let's get life back, let's do something with this? And, and then, so, so dur- during those, idea. during the, uh, fallow years, mm-hmm. um, they, they published life books. Right. So, you know, the secrets of Jesus and, um, you know, the, the Manson family and, and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, so there, there was, so, so life existed. Um, and they had to do that in part to keep the trademark. Always a timing, you know, it's the time in life building. Mm-hmm. There was a great love of life. It was Henry Luce's great love, you know, behind time. Um, and I think they always wanted to bring it back in some way. But for years, I don't think people were sitting around scribbling notes. What can we do? What can we do? What can we do? So I have to justify at that point in time too. I mean, how do you pump up the energy for that? Because it was, there's a reason why it went away. It was no longer well, really that's right. irrelevant. That's right. And so, and so when someone came up with this, um, what they thought was a way to enter the newspaper market, what they thought was a, a niche that they could fill and a hole between parade and USA Weekend, they took advantage of that. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, you know, we launched w- with about uh, 12.5 or so million, which was, you know, far and away the biggest launch in Time Inc. history. Life in its heyday got up to that, but it didn't start there. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's a massive launch. Right. But at the same time, I would say the penetration was far less than it was with uh, life in a heyday because there are so many more people in America now and so many more media outlets. And so before, as you were saying, when life hit, it was an event. Everybody knew when, when the new issue of life hit. Monday morning, it was in your mailbox. It was there. Right. And it's like, oh, we're going to come home and we're going mm-hmm. to look at this. Um, less so, even though, even though we were bigger, less impact. But it's also, and it's also part of a newspaper, which people are getting. And as you, as you said, n- not necessarily an invited guest into the home. I mean, and some maybe not even looked at, you know, who it's knows? a passenger I mean, rather than the vehicle now. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly right. And so our covers had to be such that when you came across them, you'd go, oh, that's interesting. Mm. Uh, so we spent a lot, I mean, we put a lot of, fo- even though we weren't on the newsstand, we put a lot of focus on the cover. And, but the revenue was still coming from the advertising that was in the magazine. There wasn't a relationship. Did you have to pay the newspapers or how did that work in the sense that... Uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, there was, for some newspapers, there was some payment, but it was not tremendous. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly, mostly they were, they were, they... they knew that they were losing younger readers, the newspapers, and they wanted something that was in color, that mm-hmm. skewed younger, that was maybe good news to keep younger readers. 
I mean, and so, and so that's what we delivered. Mm-hmm. And basically, po- it, was, it was a selling point for a lot of these newspapers that needed something, new piece of bait to throw at their readers. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. And so, for that reason, we 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 saw it as a win-win relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. They didn't cost them, and they gained value. In the meantime, you got somebody else delivering your that's product. Right. That's right. Okay. And so then the focus tended to be a bit more on celebrity and lifestyle and the covers. I mean, the covers that you sent me were all pretty much all celebrity photos. So yeah. Really, yeah. And that was you know that, the that direction. Yeah. yeah, that wasn't all. That wasn't a hundred percent the case. Mm-hmm. You know, th- there were some stories, uh, conceptual stories. I mean, this is years ago, but mm-hmm. you know, we did one about. Um, I think the King Tut exhibit was was oh. moving from I don't know Egypt to you know L.A. or something. So we followed the museum directors and, and how you pack up uh, a priceless um, mummy and sarcophagus and. And transport it from X. So, so there were sort of process stories. Uh, the closest we got to photo essays right. in the traditional sense, uh, things like that. And that was going to be my next question: Was there an emphasis on the essay in that sense, or did you have to balance something? So, so that's an interesting question. Um, I would say that we did lots of photo stories, but that I wouldn't necessarily call an essay. Right. Like for me, when I think about a photo essay, um, it's like, you know, uh, country doctor, you know, Eugene Smith's country doctor. It's got a beginning, it's got a middle, it's got an end. It goes on for some number of pages. Mm-hmm. We did photo concept stories like this, like this King Tut. Um, we found out that people were building roller coasters in their backyards. So we sent photographers out all over the country to see these homemade roller coasters in the backyard. Um, we had the idea to go to Times Square and ask people, tourists, anybody walking through, what do you have in your pocket? Mm-hmm. And they emptied their pockets for us and we photographed them and we asked them, you know, why, why that was. It's not a photo essay. It's <laughs> we'll not, get to the what we keep pretty soon, <laughs> I guess, now. <laughs> it, 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 it's, not, it's not a photo essay, but it was a photo story. Uh-huh. Gotcha. gotcha. Now they just call TSA and security clearance yeah, at the airport. Exactly. It's the same thing. <laughs> exactly. That's <laughs> a pretty good series, right? There you go. <laughs> and um, and was there an issue? One of the earlier issues that that you said you said well, you said you, you felt like you it was there in, in the first uh, issue, but uh, was there a, a time or a, uh, or an, a particular issue that you felt okay? Now we really got going what we want. So that first issue, I thought was strong. Mm-hmm. Um, the photo story in that was we focused on immigrants, refugees, three families that were coming into the United States, one from Afghanistan, I think, one from uh, Asia. You're only allowed one suitcase when you come, at least at that time, when you come into the country. And so we asked them, Took uh, uh, the photographer Christian Whitkin took photographs of these families uh, with their suitcase opened up, and they talked about why they brought these various things from their countries. And then we had Frank McCourt, you know, who wrote Angel's Ashes mm-hmm. and um, write an essay about coming to America and the immigrant experience. Mm. Um, so it was really lovely. And then, uh, you know, um, the next issue we did, Why I Vote. We had uh, John McCain and Tina Fey on the cover. Right. Um, and we went and we asked all these well-known people, um, like ranging from Madeleine Albright to Andre 3000, um, why they voted. And so that, that seemed like a pretty tight mm-hmm. photo concept and people, people like it. It was keeping with the spirit of the original publication, but adding that little celebrity spin to it in a way was a, that's a, that's a comfortable blend. Yeah. And, and, and by, and by juxtaposing people like Madeleine Albright and Andre 3000 from Outcast, 
um, we tried to touch a lot of people and, and su- something and, for everybody and, there. Su- and, and surprise you, yeah. not something from everybody, but also that friction yeah. between, you know, uh, a hip hop genius and a, uh, uh, you know, foreign policy genius. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And were, what were the photographers or who were the photographers you were contracting with? Was it, was there a continuation in that sense? Uh, and can you mention some names? Yeah. So, um, we didn't have staff photographers because our staff, so our staff was, I don't know, 20, 23, something like that. In the golden age of life, it was 250. So we didn't, I wish we had staff photographers. I think you lose something very serious without staff photographers. Um, and that's one of the things that, you know, that life had. And those people were always, wherever they were, were always on the lookout for a life story. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had folks like uh, Alex Soth, mm-hmm. Brigitte Lancome, um, Anise and Venude, the fashion photographers, did our first cover uh, with uh, Sarah Jessica Parker. Uh, that Mar- was the, the Sarah Jessica Parker was the first one? Oh, that's yeah. right. It didn't even says that on the cover. Yeah, yeah we're it back. says we're back. We're back. Yeah. Right, right, right. Funny story about that. I'll tell you later if we okay. get to it. Mark Peterson, Jeff Rydell, Dan Winters, Art Stryber, Joe McNally, Chris Buck. Uh, Casperd, so you know some pretty, some yeah. pretty, you know they they loved working for us. Yeah, some big names, a couple we've had on the Inclu- show too. Yeah, yeah. Just a couple, a couple <laughs> of former guests. Oh. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and of course, it was all per assignment and and freelanced out. And were the rates comparable to the other magazines at the time? I, I mean, I know there's legendary stories of the budgets that you know W. Eugene Smith had back in the day. I'm sure at this point. Those All did those not changes, exist. Yeah, exactly. All yes. those, those changes had been made already. So you were freelancing out to these folks, right? We we yeah. we talked about those budgets. <laughs> yeah. You know, at the time, they also had the, in the old days drink carts on Fridays coming. Through. We didn't have that either. Um, the, the we we paid um, freelancers uh, competitively, but I, but I don't think they were like counting their sacks of gold that they got from from Life Magazine. <laughs> but the opportunity to shoot for Life, the brand number one. You know, if you're a photographer, you've clearly grown up with life or studied life, and they love that. Yeah. But I think more, they loved working with George Pitts, um, and they loved the freedom that they had. Uh, he would spend a lot of time casting the right photographer and discussing the assignment, but then giving them a large amount of freedom. Um, and that, as the editor-in-chief, uh, was a little crazy-making for me because mm. uh, I like my control. Yeah. Um, I mean that the the shot from Sarah Jessica Parker, the early uh, Polaroids that we got back from our first cover, the first picture I saw had Sarah Jessica Parker with a bag over her head, almost like a suicide shot, uh-huh. and I was like, you know, you must be kidding me. We are not putting this in a family magazine. Sarah, Sarah's going with the plastic bag over her head, Who is the and it's called Life, and it's called Life, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like it's like we're back, and there's like a, and she's smothering herself. <laughs> Have a great weekend. Um, One last word. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so we didn't go with that shot. Um, the shot we went with, you know, they got it, and it was great. Right, right. Do you remember who the photographer was? That was Anise and Venude. Oh, the, 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 okay. Yeah. Right. The, <laughs> right, right. No, that's <clears throat> funny. And what what kind of relationship with the with the Time Inc. Uh, corporate structure did you have? Were you operating a little bit separately or allies on you guys? Um, a lot of people, when they think of of um, the Time Inc. brass, you know, rest in peace, um, <laughs> was that they were sort of the media overlords. Uh, my experience was was different. That they. They hired the best people that they thought that could run this thing, and then they kind of let you do it. 
until they didn't like what you were doing. Mm. And then they would find somebody else to do it. So my experience was, you know, um, not a lot of uh, looking over your shoulder, looking over your shoulder. I remember they did look at the dummy layouts of my first three issues. Uh, and after that, they were done. Mm-hmm. So, so, but, did you have a oh, – now you said you, you – how much creative control did you have 100%. On uh, okay. 100%. One thing I wanted to clarify from before is what was your title prior to this? I, I was the, the editor-in-chief of that custom content okay. um, division, gotcha. which, which you know was huge. The, uh, my staff was 80-plus people plus freelancers, and we were putting out um, – you know, hundreds of magazines a year. So that was, a, it was a huge division. Um, and then I had been uh, editor-in-chief of that that smaller uh, startup business magazine before. This was clearly the biggest, highest profile thing I had done. Mm. Okay. And uh, you had mentioned in one of our earlier emails that the, the, the model for the supplement, uh, the supplement model was not to your liking necessarily. Can we talk a little bit about that model and, and whether you felt there was a better way to go about it? And ha- had you been just a straight up magazine, things would have been better? Well, I don't think they would have launched a straight up magazine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think they needed this particular business case uh, to give the go ahead. Um, what, was, what was hard for me was that um, we didn't have a lot of pages to tell stories. Do, did, you know, did I want to tell Eugene Smith stories uh, over 16 pages um, with photographs you know, covering a spread? You're damn right I did. Um, but we didn't have the pages. And number two, a lot of the av- – I mean the, a page of advertising in Life magazine when I was there I, I think was around $300,000. Huge amount of money. So there were a lot of partial ads. Hard to tell f- long photo stories when you're kind of wrapping around an ad for, you know, oatmeal. Right. Um, so so there were there were built-in challenges. Right, right. And who were some of the, the major advertisers at that point for you guys? I'm, I mean, we had a lot of auto. Mm-hmm. Um, we had packaged goods. I think there was um, makeup uh, and, and some beauty. And there were there were, um, you know, movies, tobacco, and liquor. Though that was still just that was gone. That was history. And that we was, didn't we didn't. That know. was the cash cow for all of these magazines. The and stuff. we we also decided we made a decision not to take ads um, that were so popular in Parade um, and USA Weekend, like uh, commemorative coins and mm-hmm. uh, commemorative. Dishes oh, from the, uh, the so and so mint in yeah, Schenectady. Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, we, so we wanted to keep it um, feeling a little classier and higher, and um, made, made made the decision accordingly. And what would you say? What did what was there anything specific that that you felt that you brought to this new publication that 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 diverged from what had come previously? I mean, given the you know the strictures of of this type of format. Um, or things that you had wanted to do that you weren't able to do? I want to tell long stories. I wanted to tell, ideally, uh, more hard-hitting stories. Mm-hmm. But for the reasons we talked about, you, you, you know, you're living in a newspaper mm-hmm. um, and five-year-olds could be reading this. Um, that, that, you know, we really couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I brought creative sensibility to this and a sense that America was no longer um, just white. Mm-hmm. And I think a sense of humor that had been lacking before. And uh, what 
over those three years, the three years, fair to say, 2007 yeah, to... Yeah, just about three, about three yeah, years, yeah, more or less. What... What was the kind of the evolution? What changes did you see as you went along for good or for bad? Well, one of the things that we that we came to pretty early on was we wanted our back page to be, you know, interactive, um, to be something, you know, like the equivalent of a, of a, of a crossword puzzle for us. Um, and so we called it Picture Puzzle. And what that came to be was sort of a spot the difference between these two photos. So identical photos, but one of them would have 10 differences that were made in Photoshop. And so you had to sit there over your coffee on Sunday morning or Saturday morning and try to find these things. And some were were quite difficult. That was a huge hit. We we ended up starting books and calendars based on those, and we sold over 3 million books. Mm. Um, So that that became a whole different um, revenue stream. I remember those, yeah. Um, (laughs) Too funny. Yeah, you had a relatively short run. Did you feel that it was ever going to go beyond that deep inside. So in the beginning, I thought we had a chance, um, as did as did the brass at Time Inc. But pretty early on, we started to get signals that, uh, you know, newspapers started firing people. Uh, they started cutting sections. And at that point, um, we got nervous because it, said, it sent a really strong signal about print and the viability of the papers and the viability of our partnerships and how much people valued the thing that we were making. Um, so we started to feel that, you know, 2005, um, you know, I, I, it, that predates Instagram by, by years. And I don't even think Facebook was like a big thing in 2005. Um, but you still started to get a whiff that it was going to be tough and that and advertising budgets were constricting somewhat for print. So, so, and by the end, you know, I won't say that, uh, when we got the, you're done message, we were surprised. Um, we thought we'd have a little more time. You always do. Mm-hmm. You think, you know, mm-hmm. um, so. And how had did, you continued, do you think you could have, uh, you know, <laughs> pulled it off to, to the extent that you wanted to, to a level that you wanted to, or justify itself and nobody would be breathing down your neck? Did you, if you had more time, do you think you could have done it? So with the magazine, honestly, I'm not sure. And part of that was because you're going out to 13 million people every week. Our biggest cost was paper. Right. And the more, the more your circulation grows, the more, the, the more money you're spending. Right. Right. And so it's this, it's this thing about your, your, you know, your success is eating you at the same time. So I'm not sure. And, and, you know, we were clearly in my very humble and unbiased opinion, um, kicking the butts of our competition. Um, you know, our stories were better and more engaging and more interesting. We were getting bigger stars on our covers than everybody else, even though our circulation wasn't as big because they looked better and, 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 and we had more fun with it. But, um, our paper was much more expensive. Gotcha. And did the did the the word of of the the closing come quickly and and like, did they cut your head off right away or was there kind of uh, lots of conversations and and what was the reaction by yourself and your staff? So the react so so my uh, I will never forget this conversation. My editor John Huey called me and he was he was the the head of Time Inc. and, and he said sit down and sat down and we ch- you know we chatted uh, frequently so this wasn't close the door and he said Bill you're not gonna like this 
And he said, you know, you, you, you know, you guys are done. And he said, do you want me to come down and tell your staff? And I said, no, like, you know, I'll, I got it. And, um, you know, I remember, I think there was two or three days before I told the staff, uh, as planned, you know, when you do these things, you come up with a, a massive, you know, plan so that things don't come out and advertisers aren't caught short. And it, it's a mm-hmm. whole, like, you know, like the Israeli intelligence is working <laughs> to make sure this is all, you know, buttoned up and contingencies. <laughs> But I remember going into that room um, and telling the staff and um, through my tears, mm-hmm. uh, it was so, it was, it was so hard for me. Uh, um, you know, we had all been in this and fought so hard and started this thing together, um, had, had done great stories and more than anything else and liked each other and had fun and wanted to keep doing it. But more than anything else, it was life. It was life. And we, and we all felt like, me especially, we let it down. Mm-hmm. We felt that weight. You've got tears in your eyes right now. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you are. I mean, I mean it's I tell you something, from your heart. I can I, tell. <laughs> it, it really is. Um, I mean, I, the way you just put it, I get it. It, yeah. was, it, was, it, was a, it was a, you know, I've had a few hard moments in my life. Um, but the other ones were personal. Gotcha. And this this was really uh, this was really a moment. And what was the time frame between that meeting that you had with your boss and and the final issue coming out and, and these conversations you had? Right. Well, that's another. Th- so we and so we had this conversation. So I don't know. Uh, it was maybe three days from when my boss told me, and then I um, told my top people, and then we had this meeting. Mm-hmm. And then we had to put out one more issue. Um, and that was really hard. Um, but it ended up being, um, you know, uh, yeah. Was it a goodbye issue? Did you, did you form it that way or no? It, you know, it wasn't, we had some, uh, I can't, I can, you know, I, I all remember is we had a, a story by Elizabeth Gilbert, um, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love yeah. in the issue. And she wrote a beautiful story about a swimming hole. Um, and, and, um, that felt like a fitting goodbye. Okay. We're going to take a short break and we come back more about Life, the magazine, and life.com with Bill Shapiro. Stay tuned. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the BH Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at BH Photo Video, hashtag BH Photo Podcast. Okay, we are back with Bill Shapiro. So, Life Magazine, as we knew it, comes to an end in 2007, and then two years later, rises from the ashes as Life.com. What was it like coming back into that office? I imagine in that two years, the the atmosphere and just the dynamics of time life changed dramatically. So I had continued um, during that period uh, working at time. Um, I was called a development editor and I was helping to develop new magazines to launch mm-hmm. um, or overseeing sections that were kind of being reimagined in different magazines. So, so, I, was, so I was still there and, and, and being creative. And this idea for life.com started to sort of percolate. Um, and 
we developed it in kind of a skunk works, you know, uh, like, could this work? What, what, what's this idea? So what there was nothing be? else like this within time life that you were kind of modeling this on. This was the first of its type. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Right. The way that it was conceived was really interesting. So there were about 12 million images in the time life archive in the library. Extraordinary number of images. You know, all of these taken by life staff photographers going all the way back. So um, jumped, but, but life had copyright on all of these. Everything that was shot going back was owned by life. So um, that's a that's a great um, and not simple question. Mm. Um, a lot, you know, all, uh, the images owned by staff photographers were fully owned by life. But there were lots of uh, photographers who did not start off on staff. Mm -hmm. And so there were you know, we had them in the archive, but did we have full rights? And maybe they then then became staff and then they left. And so there was a lot of figuring out. Oh, a lot of gray area who, there. Who owned yeah. what? Um, mm -hmm. But but by and large, you know, with, with, with some exceptions, um, we had a ridiculous number of high quality photos to look through, but they were not digitized. Mm -hmm. So uh, Andy Blau who was my uh, uh, the, the, the president of Life Magazine and my business partner who I launched Life Magazine, relaunched Life Magazine with, had the idea of getting with Google to have them digitize all of these photographs or a huge portion of them. So that got underway. We also contracted, or not contracted, we worked out a, a joint venture with Getty Images for Life.com because they were interested at that point in having a consumer-facing uh, product. So in the end, we had this really great partnership with Google, um, with Life, and with Getty to create a website that brought people an amazing number of high-quality images uh, on a daily, hourly basis. It's like a perfect storm of, of dynamics Very there. strong. Yeah. Super strong. Mm -hmm. And was there an attempt to kind of format this as a magazine or as a weekly or any kind of like uh, issues coming out? We, we, we sort of felt like coming off of uh, shuttering the magazine, and this was even two years after that, mm -hmm. uh, that we were going digital. Yeah. The, 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 there was no thought of going print um, at all. But not even print, but let's say a, a digital magazine where no. you would put something out. There was no thought of week. that. No. It, it was going to be uh, an ongoing feed, uh, we thought that by using the Getty images and the Getty feed, we could capture um, search for various news items. So if it's the Oscars, if it's a celebrity got into a car accident, if there's a sports moment, um, if there's something going viral with a panda bear, we could be all over it um, and toggle between the news cycle and these great photos from the Life Archive, which we did a lot. So let's just say there was uh, you know, 10 panda bears escaped from uh, a zoo in China and Getty had the photos. We would go back to the archive and find other animal escapes through history and tie it together and, you know, so that sort of thing. And who, how were you getting people to come to the site then? Was it uh, just they, word of mouth in general? They knew about it? Uh, subscription? Did you advertise on Facebook? And uh, No, it was um, organic um, through the power of the life and Getty photographs. 
you know, we launched uh, on March 31st or April 1st, you know, r- right around the anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King. In advance of that, knowing when we were going to launch, I had us do a bunch of research into the life archives and to see if we could find any never before seen images from that day. And unbelievably, we found some. And these, these pictures were taken by a young life photographer, young at the time, named Henry Grzynski, who made it to the Lorraine Motel uh, hours after the assassination. The pictures that he took, absolutely jaw-droppingly stunning. Uh, the, the brother of the Lorraine Motel um, owner sweeping up Dr. King's blood from the landing. Um, pictures of King's colleagues hugging each other in tears. King's suitcase with his shaving cream and Bible in it. Super intimate pictures because like the cops hadn't really like shut down the scene yet. The pictures never ran in life because the editor thought probably correctly that they would inflame them. So they didn't run. And we were able to, 50 years later, bring them back. And to your point, um, we launched with those pictures. They were everywhere, CNN, ABC, NBC, and uh, and we were, and Life.com was born. Mm-hmm. And so then the project... In, in general, was a combination of, of, like, as you said, looking back at what you had and kind of an archive dig and trying to just go back and, and just rediscover what you have in combination with what, whatever Getty was supplying you. And is that fair to say? I yeah, mean, and, and, um, and coming up with story ideas uh-huh. uh, and toggling back and forth between and contextualizing um, what was happening now with what was happening then. But the editorial decisions were made by you or at, at Life.com. It yeah, wasn't Getty saying, hey, nope, we nope, want this. Nope, zero. Okay. Right. It was, we, were, we were, you know, myself and my team, we were uh, very much 100% in charge of that. When you came into new assignments for Life.com, was the approach different from the magazine as far as the scope? Obviously, you couldn't use as many pictures. Or am I wrong about that? Um, so the great thing about and what was so exciting um, about working at life.com as opposed to the magazine is we could tell stories that could go on as long as the story needed to be told. Uh, We didn't have to stop at six images because we only had six pages. And we could even break a great set of pictures into two stories if it it made sense to, to, you know, to do that. So we didn't assign tons and tons of stories uh, because we had such an unbelievable wealth of assets, you know, at our, at our fingertips really. But we did assign some stories, uh, some terrific stories, where we had a photographer inside the Westboro Church. Um, you know, those are some pretty scary folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also, for a different story, went inside the KKK kind of family picnic. And so we, we, we did some stuff, and we let those run pretty, you know, as long as the pictures were strong, we let it go. And there was budget for that in general? Or you we, had f- kind we figured of, it we out. Figured it out. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah. it became worth yeah. it. And what was the... <clears throat> What was the the, rev, the ad revenue, or how did you guys plan to make money off of this? Right, so um, it was based it was it was based on traffic. We sold mm-hmm. ads against traffic, mm-hmm. and our site was was really well designed. It was it was a, you know, the opposite of BuzzFeed in many ways. It was it was kind of a luxury experience. the The background was black. The photos were super clean. There wasn't boxes of ads all over the place. Right. So uh, Rolex advertised, uh, some autos advertised. Um, uh, HBO advertised. Uh, so we had some really uh, Disney advertised. We had some very strong 
uh, top shelf mm-hmm. advertisers. And, and and was there an issue getting these these ad dollars coming in? Did that ever be? Was that what was the ultimate you know reasons why this was uh, was shuttered? Well, first first early on, getting ad dollars for online stuff was impossible because nobody everybody just looked at as giving things away for free. Yeah. Um. So so there was, was a there, there, there were some of that. Um. So you know we had. We had some. We did pretty well with that with advertising, um, and I think at the end of our second year, we were just about at break even. Um, you know, we we in our first full year, we did over a billion page views. You know, it was super super strong. We won the National Magazine Award for best digital photography. We won a couple of Webby awards for, for best design website and I don't know, uh, best homepage. So, so we were, we were doing, um, great in many respects and we had the highest engagement in the timing building, people staying on site because people like pictures and they, they'll look through an endless number of pictures if, if the stories are told well. Um, the advertising was, was somewhat challenging, like money wasn't, you know, being dumped on us. But we, but we were doing okay. But, the, but, but, you know, the reason why um, Life.com eventually became something else wasn't really to do with the advertising. So you were getting recognition. You were about to start going into the black. What what caused them to just say, "All right, we're pulling the plug. We don't want to pursue it." I mean, you were you were about to make it. It seemed like you were growing and happening. Yeah. My my feeling is we were in a we were in a really good um, place. A couple of interesting things happened, and you know it, it's really a case of corporate cannibalism. Um, uh, you know our traffic was terrific. Time dot com, which was in the same corporate group as we were and sort of oversaw us, um, needed more traffic, and it was more important for the company for Time dot com to be successful because more money was on the line. They were bigger than we were. Essentially, they swallowed us. They, they, they said, we need your traffic. And so we became a vertical, a section, under time.com. And so your, your success was the, responsible for your demise, in that, a sense. That is exactly right. I mean, somebody <laughs> said to me, when we won the Digital Photography National Magazine Award, somebody pulled me aside and said, you win, you lose. Oof. And did you, did you get what was being told to you at that moment or no? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't. Um, you know, but I remembered those words because, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> um, so, wow. so at that point when it went under time, um, I, I left my deputy, Ben Cosgrove, um, moved over along with one other staffer, um, moved over to, to, to run life.com. But at that point they got rid of all the Getty, um, news pictures and just made it archival, um, and Ben did a great job. Personally, I never wanted to have it be an archival project where it was only looking through dusty old pictures. Like to me, you had to have new pictures of the day and people. That's uh, my feel too. People That's that things we're earlier. talking yeah. about and, and stuff that was in the zeitgeist to make it feel relevant. Yeah. So at that point then, other than the two people you mentioned, they, they kind of cleared, 
cleared the staff out. And, yeah. And that was it. That yeah. Was it. And then, yeah. and then since then it's even, uh, I'm not even sure it exists anymore. So do you see any, any remnants of it in, in what they're doing now, either at time or? No. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, I think there are some archival pages up at time.com, which you can find. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a currently curated, well-staffed, well-thought-out um, experience. I mean, I think they're still doing some some uh, picture stories, but it's not it's not the same. I mean, it's a completely different experience. Right. And fair to say that that was the final chapter, or at least for now, of Life magazine? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's my, you know, I think the brand has so much uh, equity, and I want to circle back to that in a second, but has so much equity and so much power that I promise you it will come back at yeah. some point. Uh, I guarantee it. But at the same time, and, you know, I meant to mention this earlier when we were talking about launching the magazine. One of the issues with launching with a name like Life is that everybody knows it. Everybody knows its power. But everybody also think everybody also thinks they know what it is. Mm. I can't tell you how many times we would come to a young ad buyer. Which, mm-hmm. You know, these are the people who kind of hold the keys to the kingdom and you don't get to see their boss until you kind of cross. And they'd be like, oh yeah, life, my dad read that. Right. Right. Challenge. Totally. Yeah. Brand, Branding's yeah. a tough one to, yeah. to redo sometimes. So, so I do think life will be back. Um, you know, if I had a crystal ball, I'd say, I'd say yes, but um, uh, I don't quite know in what form. Well, it's kind of interesting because if you, you know, do a little Wikipedia search on life, you find that in, 19, in the 30s when Luce bought it, I mean, it was it had already existed for 50 some odd years as a, as a magazine in a right. different format. Right. Not, and, not, not, not a photographic magazine. No, absolutely not. He, he, totally, he, he bought it just for the name itself right. and, and, you know, sold the subscriptions and everything else to other people and, and started a whole new format magazine. Now, so. in some ways, um, the woman who would become... Luce's wife, Claire Booth Brokaw at that time, was a young editor at Vanity Fair. She pitched the idea of a photo magazine mm. to Condé Nast. They didn't take it. And eventually she married Luce and uh, not long after that, Life's life. Started. Interesting. Oh, I didn't know that part of it. That's interesting. And I have a question about I mean, the environment for magazines today because we are seeing new photo magazines launch. Even in print, there's this California... California Sunday, Sunday magazine. Yeah, they're doing great work. They're doing great work, exactly. And of course, there are many online photo magazines that that are, you know, kind of returning to this idea of the photo essay and and a lot of very heavy paper, glossy publications. Sort of like rather than going for newsprint, they're going for more expensive right. stuff. Well, yeah. so I believe that Time Inc. made a huge mistake by closing Life.com because they seeded a tremendous amount of authority and traffic um, around the currency of photos to, again, to, to Instagram, Instagram and some sure. of the others uh, and, and, and Facebook and whatnot. And I think that the, they, they missed a real opportunity and th- they didn't sort of look at it. it. At that time, you could see Instagram taking off. You could see what was being shared on Facebook mostly pictures, right. right? So the currency of communication now um, is almost entirely photographs, the things you text to each other, mm-hmm. yeah. um, the things that go viral. Um, it, they're pictures. And the need for 
um, a place where you can see the best pictures of the day and the best photo stories of the day and the photos that will move you and make you feel something in some way, I think that exists. But can online certainly, um, but in print form, what would be what would be necessary to get people to go to the magazine and open it up and, and well, look, it's for good, their, it's, look for their best photos in a, in yeah, a print form? Yeah, I think format. it's I think I think you know the way magazines going mostly they're super niche. Yeah. So. If you're a horse person and you want to see the best photos of horses, uh, you know, that might work. Right. Um, but I, I, you know, I have some trouble believing, and not just about, this has nothing to do with photography, any general, any sort of broad interest magazine, I think it's just too hard right now. Yeah. I, w- I wish that wasn't the case because I'm, you know, kind of a magazine lover. Mm-hmm. But uh, with the exception of The New Yorker, you know, yeah. It's, it's, tough. Getting, it's getting hard. It really is getting hard to justify going to a newsstand and buying a magazine. I, I, and again, I earned my living for a million years photographing for magazines. It hurts me to say that, but yeah. that's the fact. That's, yeah. that's what's happening. Yeah. Well, you know, for, for example, this California Sunday magazine, something to keep, keep your eye on. Yeah, you know, they're, they're doing they do. great work. Yeah. Um, yeah. They really are. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your other work because you got a lot of other stuff going on during that time and, and, and since you've published a few books and uh, we have in front of us What We Keep, which is the most recent. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, I guess it does share a little DNA with uh, some of the projects you were doing at uh, Life Magazine, uh, particularly the one about uh, Times Square, what's in your pocket and things right. like that. So so can you explain the book a little bit? Well, yeah, I have this, I have this feeling in, in my body that um, objects tell stories. And so um, my co-author, Naomi Wax, and I spent three years going around the country and um, talking to people about the single object in their life that has the most emotional resonance and getting the stories behind those. So we, we spoke with people like uh, Melinda Gates and Tana Hesse Coates and Cheryl Strait and, um, you know, Joss Whedon and, you know, and also, you know, quote unquote, regular people. Right. Um, and the stories are just, you know, really, really moving. Mm. Um, and uh, in the book, there's, there's the a photo, of this, a photo of the object um, and then the story that goes along with it. Any common threads you pick up along the way? Well, one of the things we found is that um, no one chose an object of monetary value. You know, it's like our, our hearts are not accountants. Um, mm-hmm. we, we go for the meaningful, not not the monetary. Um, so that that was a little surprising to us. And did anybody just come come with the picture and say, this photo of something is the, my most treasured item? Or did you rule photos off the table? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so there was an, an artist named Radcliffe Bailey, who's an a- African-American, uh, pretty celebrated artist, um, who's terrific. He, his, his, his object, um, or a series of, um, tintypes of his family from the 1890s, which his grandmother gave to him when he was uh, just out of art school. And he was sort of, as he describes it in his story, looking for direction and looked at these pictures and started to find his direction. So these were meaningful, not only because his grandmother gave them to him before, before he passed away, they're beautiful pictures, um, because they're his relatives but because it was also sort of a fork in the road and these pictures gave him the steer that he needed to kind of reach the heights that he did. 
It's funny that you mentioned people having objects that that have meaning in their life. Uh, I can't help but thinking back to uh, Jay Maisel being here, where he had a building full of things that he's found, and every single one was a story to him and a project to him. But literally, he had 55 rooms full of things that had meaning. Yeah, we tried to narrow it down a little bit. <laughs> and did you, were there any, did you hear of somebody's item and said, oh, we want to, we got we to find that story or we got to get this person in the book? Or was it, I mean, how did you find the people that you ultimately included? So great question. Um, there were some people that we just thought were so interesting that we wanted to include. You know, like I, I approached uh, the great photographer, Neil Leifer, um, because he's seen so many things over the years. And he uh, had assigned uh, Muhammad Ali boxing glove. Mm. And, you know, one of the reasons Neil right. got to where he was is because he photographed and had such a great relationship with with the champ. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people we just interviewed um, and, you know, we thought about who would have a unique relationship to an object? Okay, would somebody who's doing a long stint in prison, mm. you know, would a cloistered nun, would a counterfeiter who makes fake things? Right. Um, you know, would a, would a, would a Buddhist who's not supposed to be attached to anything. Um, <laughs> so we, we asked, we went after people like that and, and sure enough, they had some pretty interesting stories to tell. Okay. Great. Yeah. Um, and while we're here, let's just throw out the other two books. That, well, how many books have you done? Let's yeah. put it that way. Uh, I and, think I've done about four. And have all of this has come since life.com? Closed his doors and, and you walked away or some of them were in, in The first before? book was in 2007. So okay. that was around the time that Life magazine was closing. Gotcha. Um, and then the Keith Richards book, I think was 2014. Mm -hmm. What I think is so cool is that you went from an online uh, uh, product to doing books. <laughs> I love it, actually. You know, <laughs> for, me, for me, it's all about the idea and and... I'll find whatever medium is best yeah. to tell that story. You know, at, at life.com, we decided to do an app for the tablet, which was kind of all the rage. And it was a great medium for that because you could bring in sound and move, you know, and, and film interviews that had been done with some of the great photographers over the years. And you could have a map and you could say, oh, I want to see pictures of Belarus or I want to see pictures of Alabama. And and go there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that app ended up being um, number one in 33 countries. And so it's really about what's the idea and can you marry it to the right medium? So in some ways I'm kind of, you know, medium agnostic, mm. just w what's the best marriage for the idea? So gotcha. What we keep would be a good podcast. I, what do you think? I'm in talks. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, great. And so that's the next project then? What We Keep podcast? Or what, what are you doing next? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm actually working on a couple. I'm uh, developing a couple of photo-based ideas, um, uh, some for clients, one one fine art and one um, more of a, a, a personal thing, you know, um, and also thinking about the next um kind of iteration of what we keep uh, and extending that because uh, people people really like it and, course, and find and idea. find something yeah. for them in it so thinking about the next iteration a sort of exploration of that idea mm. we did our recently a uh, what is photography 
portrait series, uh, another, another one of our, our colleagues here, and we asked a lot of the photographers who, who we photographed if they could bring in something that speaks to photography oh, for them. Oh, nice. And it was a nice idea. A lot of them didn't bring anything. It, it wasn't a requirement, <laughs> needless to say. because Three wanna, of them brought this book <laughs> in, which was interesting. <laughs> we, Only we, three. <laughs> we didn't want to scare it away, but, but, uh, but some people did bring some things, and it was pretty great. I mean, the, the first camera they ever had or whatever it happens to be. So well, what happens, you know, one of the things, maybe to answer your question before, what we found was that when people start talking about objects that are meaningful to them, they don't realize they're talking about themselves. Yeah. And that's when the door opens. Mm. This has been a, as usual, another fun, fun episode. And uh, Bill, it's been great talking to you. Uh, if people want to get a hold of uh, What We Keep, your latest book, where can they get copies of it? Wherever fine books are sold. There you um, go. <laughs> so, so Amazon, Barnes & Noble, independent bookstores, and, and our site is um, whatwekeep.org. Okay. And Running Press is the, the publisher. Okay. And, and it's a wonderful book, by the way. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun to go through. And, it, and it's interesting to see what strikes a chord with people. And I think we all have a common thread for that whole thing. It was, it was really fun to put together. Okay, before we go into sign-off mode, a reminder, if you're going to be in town on February 5th and 6th, join us for Depth of Field, a free two-day wedding and portrait event smack dab right here in the middle of heart of New York City. We are going to be there. We're going to be doing interviews right there on location. If you're there, stop by and say hi. Among the speakers, Albert Watson is going to be delivering the keynote speech, which alone is worth the price of admission. If you are not a subscriber to the B&H Photography Podcast, what you're waiting for? It is informative. It is entertaining. And it's the only photography podcast that's visible in the infrared portion of the light spectrum without need of expensive filters. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, and Spotify. And you can always find us on the B&H Explorer website and coming soon, the BH Photography Podcast Facebook group. For now, on behalf of Jason, John, and myself, thank you so much for tuning in today. <laughs> <laughs>